I'm Gracie Newman, and this is Under the Tides, where I take you beneath the waves to hunt for sea monsters. Together, we'll discover what these creatures are, whether they exist, and why we care if they do. started in the ocean, yet for those that remain in the waters, some of those species are considered the biggest creatures in the world. For centuries, sailors have claimed something unexplained in these murky waters. There's hot debate about whether there is some unknown gigantic eel-like monster in Stonehaven Bay. Nine terrifying sea serpent sightings. What really lies under the water? Ready? Maggie and Millie and Molly and May went down to the beach to play one day. And Maggie discovered a shell that sang so sweetly she couldn't remember her troubles. And Millie befriended a stranded star whose rays five languid fingers were. And Molly was chased by a horrible thing, which raced sideways while blowing bubbles. And May came home with a smooth round stone, as small as a world and as large as a loan. For whatever we lose, like a you or a me, it's always ourselves we find in the sea. That was my mother reciting a poem by E.E. Cummings. She used to read it to me before bed when I was a child, back when I believed I was a mermaid. Ever since I can remember, I have been captivated by the ocean, its mysteries, its magic, its danger. And while I've always felt at home swimming in the sea, I very soon began to wonder, what else might be lurking under the tides? One monster has been on my mind a lot lately. It's an Icelandic sea serpent called the Lagerflatsormer, also known as the Lagerflat worm. Sightings have been reported for centuries, and a few years ago, the Icelandic government actually established a truth commission to decide whether it was real or not. That people care so much about this sea monster, even in this century, despite all of our technology, I find that really interesting. There must be a reason. Reports of sea monsters stretch back for thousands of years. These strange beasts fascinate, they frighten, and they probably don't exist. Yet from the Loch Ness Monster to the biblical Leviathan, these creatures still interest us and perform vital roles in numerous cultures. But what exactly makes a sea monster? If science and myth operate as a binary, How can we distinguish what's a real animal and what's just a fanciful legend? What do they teach us about ourselves and the human imagination? Why the hell do we care about made-up monsters in the ocean? There's more than just natural history that uh, beneath the sea, human history. This is Jacques Cousteau, the famous French oceanographer. And uh, Jacques talks about the sea and how it grabs you emotionally. Around 95% of the ocean remains to be explored. 
As the Earth is 70% water, this means that most of the world is uncharted. To launch my sea exploration, I asked some experts why it is they thought so many monsters are rumored to live beneath the waves. My name is Larry Crowder, and I'm the Edward, Edward F. Ricketts Provostial Professor of Marine Ecology and Conservation. It's just as mysterious as when people first began making maps and charts thousands of years ago. You know, the ocean is is a mysterious place and, and the people you know saw it as uh, kind of a dangerous dark place i'm jeffrey cohen i am the dean of humanities at arizona state university and i am a professor of english there as well one of the reasons why we love thinking about sea monsters is if we can accompany them we get to go into their world and be in an environment where we can't survive. Our human limitations mean that the ocean is not for us. We'll suffocate, the pressure will get to us, we'll drown, we'll die. But if imaginatively we can accompany the monster for a while, access into this other world is given to us, other rules. It's really just an invitation to be creative in a realm that we can't otherwise explore. Okay, I'm Caroline Larrington, and I'm Professor of Medieval European Literature at the University of Oxford, and I teach Medieval English Literature. I think there is a sense in which the, the sea is kind of feminized as a dangerous, unpredictable, but in some ways quite alluring force. You do have a sense of the, the power of the sea and how the sea might be working to try to stop you from going where you want to be. My full name is uh, Art Grimur Vitalin, and I am adjunct professor of Icelandic literature at the uh, School of Education for University of Iceland. In Icelanders have always been sort of both working out on the oceans and lakes uh, out of necessity while always having a sort of respectful fear towards it. And I would also say another reason, too, is because the sea is a place of danger, even to this day. And the monster often comes to embody that danger. So whether it's a kraken or you know a siren or a mermaid that's going to lead you to destruction, it comes to embody the perils of humans at sea because our vessels will never be sufficient against waves and storms and other things that uh, can end our life very quickly. And so I think the, these monsters do speak in some ways to the kind of symbolic perils of, of big bodies of water. Um, but I think also there's something about the hidden nature, the depths that we can't see. I guess they're just cool. There's <laughs> also, I think, wishful thinking in, in a way. We really do want for supernatural things to exist. And we're really focused on them. We're really interested in them. Our whole belief system in Western Europe from the, you know, for a long time has been uh, built on this concept of an afterlife and and that we can contact our deceased loved ones in some way. 
there's a there's a uh, there's some lines in Milton's Paradise Lost when the Archangel Michael narrates the flood to Adam, and he talks about monsters of the deep now freed into human habitations and navigating what it's like to be in the human world. The sea monster challenges our human arrogance, lets us know that there are certain things that will always recede from our knowledge and certain mysteries in the deep that it's worth exploring and knowing, but not eradicating, not mastering, not, not in any way exterminating. I think it's people looking for some kind of entity to explain the unexplainable. And, and when, when ships are lost at sea in calm weather, which can happen due to poor navigation or uh, poor ship handling, you know, uh, there has to be a story. Like, where did, how did that ship disappear? It can't be the captain was drunk and inept. It has to be something happened that the brave crew couldn't pre prevent. That makes me think of how a monstrous female whirlpool named Charybdis devours sailors in the Odyssey. Or how the Kraken sinks a ship in Pirates of the Caribbean. It's also got me thinking about how monsters are often said to live at the borders of society, of safety, and of possibility. They are cultural embodiments of geographic and existential limits, guardians of the unknown and the dangerous beyond. It's an idea that I find both exciting and profoundly discomforting. So monsters police the borders of the possible, that's absolutely true. But because they're at that border, they also become invitations to things that are supposed to be impossible and to cross that border and to do more. And that can be incredibly negative. I, I wouldn't want to romanticize monsters. Lots of times they're policing a border at which, you know, we do great harm if we follow their example. And But there are other times when they're simply misunderstood. They're offering alternatives to the world we live in. They're offering other possibilities for identity, for the practice of our humanity. It reminds me of Frankenstein's monster, King Kong, the Little Mermaid. All these monstrous creatures, literature and film, have created to teach humans a lesson about morality. Very often the monster can be more humane than the humans who fear or create that monster. And my whole monster research has been focused on how we're actually just dehumanizing other groups of people, making monsters out of them. Water monsters living in different lakes and never ever being quite glimpsed, but having some kind of, of function, whether it's to keep children away from the lake so they don't fall in and get drowned, or, or whether it's to symbolize the unpredictability of trying to sail across large bodies of water. In fact, all great literature is filled with monsters, and one of the recurring universals is an obsession with monsters. It really does cross cultures and times and helps us to find a way, no matter what we're studying, to have a conversation together. And the monsters will function differently at different times in different cultures, that's a given. You know, my own experience working in different cultures and so on is humans, by our evolutionary history, are storytellers. It's part of maintaining the social structure of human communities back to our earliest days. Monsters are absolutely terrifying. 
But on the other hand, they're really enticing. Like there's something about the world they live in with all their possibilities. They disobey every rule. They can get away with a lot more. Um, there's always an investment of desire with them too. I came to realize that the fear of the monster is also a kind of desire for the monster. That explains the lustful allure of sea monsters like sirens or mermaids, since the ocean is often understood as a place of erotic mystery. So a fishwoman might represent a culturally repressed sexual desire, or a raging savage sea serpent might represent the desire to commit violence or to shed the cultural constraints of polite society. And that's why they keep recurring. It doesn't matter how many times you kill any given monster off, it's going to come back for the sequel, or there's going to be a family member, or there's something that makes humans not want to yield to having their monsters return. So all this is fine and good, but the logical part of me has to ask, what makes a creature a monster? What's to say that what we think of sea monsters aren't just really cool fish? large animals in the ocean that are no longer monsters to us. But the first time you see a humpback whale alive, it's the largest organism that's ever existed on Earth. And you're in its presence. I mean, that's pretty, like, that creates a lot of awe and shock. Tourists, we say, that was so cool, you know. But if you were on watch on a dark night, that would be terrifying if you'd never seen that animal before. It would become a monster for you. A humpback whale breaches right next to them. That would scare the shit out of you. And say a monster was trying to sink our boat. We have become, in a sense, so rational and so science-minded. And we feel, and this is a product, I guess, of the scientific revolutions of the 19th and 20th centuries, that we can explain everything in the environment. And we have the scientific tools to do it. But there's also, I think, a part of us that suspects that there are other things which we can't quite see and we can't quite hear. I think there's the invisible world, but there's also a sense that even though we've explored so much of the planet, there must still be some creatures out there that we haven't managed quite to trap and to classify yet. The ocean, there are pelagic squid, Humboldt squid that are quite large. I mean. They get to four or five or six feet long, longer with the tentacles, maybe 10 feet. And so they aren't big enough to be the kraken of myth, right? <laughs> Where they wrap their, they wrap their uh, tentacles around the mast and pull the ship down. But there are big squid out there that look a lot like the kraken drawings. So you can imagine uh, a real linkage. If you're looking for a powerful monster, it doesn't have to be big. The world's smallest organisms are the most dangerous to people, right? <laughs> Some of the amazing marine invertebrates. So that seems to me like the kind of scientist I would really like. The one who gets it, it's about wonder. So, you know, supposition, Nessie is real. Nessie is the nickname for the Loch Ness Monster of Scotland. If real, what is Nessie's world like? How many companions does Nessie have? How much food does she need? The invitation to wonder, I think, is what leads to all kinds of productive things. Whether Nessie's real or not doesn't matter. It's like, what kind of world does Nessie invite us to imagine and populate? And does it offer anything to this world that we're in? One study that I liked, and it probably just goes to my science syndrome, is somebody said, 
So if there is a Loch Ness monster, it can't be one individual. It has to be a population of them, right? Because how would you keep Loch Ness monsters in the lake for hundreds of years at least without having a reproducing population? Where does science start and myths stop? I know a lot of people say that, uh, you know, science and mythology are kind of at war with each other. I don't see that at all. I think they're just different modes of knowing that can help each other, that can activate wonder. In a way, science is just one kind of storytelling. Right? I think they're just different ways of seeing and interpreting the world and telling stories you know, from, from your cultural footing. And there's a, there's a cultural footing of science and how we tell stories. And there's a cultural footing of societies or tribes or whatever and how they tell stories. Science just comes from the Latin word for knowing or knowledge. Science is a mode of knowing. Mythology is a mode of knowing. I, I think they're, they're different but not unrelated ways of knowing the world. And another thing that I'd even add to the mix is that in the Middle Ages, what we would call natural science was called natural magic. So now we think of magic as being the opposite of science idea that there's a world just out of the corner of your eye that's in parallel. And so I think we can see that myth is a precursor to scientific explanation. Somebody who's sharing with you a cultural story from why he doesn't think it's any less factual than somebody who's showing you a genetic sequence. It's kind of hubris to say scientists who have been studying the system for 30 years know more than thousands of years of observation you know, from the people who lived in a place. And this is a scientific explanation. And this is a legendary story that also explains the same phenomena. I think if we didn't care about things like sea monsters, we would just wouldn't care about the earth and the world system we're in and preserving some things in their mystery, complexity, and their ability to recede from complete human comprehension. Right? Preserving sea monsters is a way of preserving mystery in life and leaving open the invitation to think that the world is wider. An ocean filled with sea monsters is a version of the story that you often hear in eco-catastrophe, which is the resignation to the fact that eventually the ocean will hold nothing but jellyfish in it. From that, because at a certain point, it will be so acidic that only jellyfish will be able to be alive in it. This adds a whole new dimension of loss to the environmental disaster we're witnessing that our species is producing. It never occurred to me that by destroying our lands and oceans via pollution and global warming, we're risking much more than just vital natural resources. It's also our stories, our myths, and the potential for imagination that we'll lose. The very things that make staying alive worth it in the first place. It's a frightening thought. has a giant worm monster. Seriously. Recently, an alleged sighting of the mystery beast caught on tape has reignited the myth. You are looking at a map from 1595. It just said, in this lake lives a huge monster 
that often appears that something dreadful is going to happen. The videographer claimed he had captured a legendary lake monster named Lagerflotsormorin. Having learned a bit about sea monsters, one particular example caught my attention as an intriguing case study. In 2012, a farmer's video supposedly capturing an ancient Icelandic sea serpent made international news. I remember when the video came out and it was on YouTube and everyone was watching it. And it was kind of hard to make out what was going on in the video, but it seemed like this, as I recall, some strange snaky sort of thing going through the water. I just remember thinking at the time when I saw that there, that there are just certain stories that don't go away. They mutate into new forms and into new media. At that time, you know, YouTube was a new way of accessing these kinds of stories. I was trying to imagine what it could be. No sea snake swim, that currently exists swim like that. Interesting to know. My name is Erlingur Torutsen. Um, I'm a filmmaker, um, a director, and a writer. Um, born and raised in Iceland. I kind of work in the horror genre space. So I'm, I'm always very interested in, in anything that's kind of a little bit out of the ordinary. I don't know if I believed that there, it was actually the worm, um, but I thought it was very, you know... I thought it was very intriguing. I mean, like, I actually, like, looked up that video again, you know, before, you know, talking to you. And, I mean, it's probably just, like, some ice floating or something like that. But it gets very dark and, and our winters are very long. And, um, and especially for people who live in, like, the super remote areas, you know, when it's dark and when it, when it gets foggy, like, I think that's, that's where those creatures kind of are born from. Mythology is an important part of Icelandic cultural heritage. You know, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, like, people actively are, like, that these things are, like, a part of people's everyday lives. But I think there's, like, um, I think most people would say that they, you know, that they believe in it a little bit, at least. The um, I think we like every kid knew about it because they it's included in in like our elementary school um, studies. Like all these kind of big mythical sea monsters, I think they probably all like have something to do with like the the bad weather out on the ocean or like how how the ocean how, how the waves can like swallow you whole. Um, I think like one one of the reasons that that is is because we. So, so much of like um, our livelihood is based on like, you know, food and stuff from the ocean. Um, and also like so many people either have had like relatives or friends like die on the ocean. The first recorded sighting of this creature is in 1345. And this is written down in the annals of the cathedral of Southern Iceland, the Skullholt Annal, as it's called. And what that tells us is that it, the, this monster is a really huge one. Sometimes it's forgotten that there are two of them. The original folktale of the worm. So yeah, the, the, there was this girl who had a, I believe a golden ring or something, some sort of trinket like that. and. And she found this worm, and she was advised to put the worm on the on the ring to sort of multiply it. But then that doesn't happen. The opposite happens. The worm gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then she just 
takes it. I, I imagine it's this big. <laughs> I don't know. And just throws it into the lake where it keeps on growing. And when it starts killing people, they, of course, get two Finnish guys to put an end to it because Icelanders have always associated Finns with the, the supernatural and magical uh, abilities. And so they get these two Finnish divers to go down. And they, when they emerge again, they say that they have managed to tie the worm, uh, but that its hump will sometimes, you know, come out of the lake. But that there is an even bigger worm at the very bottom of the lake. And that that is still free. They could not tie that one down. And what I really love about the Icelandic tradition of storytelling is it is always impossible to tell the monsters from the heroes. I mean, they're really, like, morality is complicated. And the di dividing line between what's right, what's wrong, what's human, what's monstrous is really thin. In Christian worlds, there's a tendency to think of there being a line of purity where something is either good or it's wicked and there is no in-between. There are also societies, and I'd say we get a really good glimpse of them in things like the Icelandic sagas, where it's not that easy. Like, living is simply difficult all the time. It's difficult to be human. It's difficult to be a monster. It's difficult to be alone. It's difficult to be part of society. We have the monster popping up in different places, pretending to be different landforms, and you could never really see its head or its tail. Then we have another mention of the creature in 1589. And on that occasion, it's supposed to march its back so high up above the water that a fast ship in full sail was able to, would have been able to pass underneath it. But it really does give this sort of sense of scale. And we also learn in this um, 16th century record that sometimes it would slam its body back into the water. And then you get an effect rather like an earthquake with rumbling and crashing, and that could damage the farmhouses around the lake. And then we have some stuff from later in the 17th century where it's humps or islets that kind of pop up and, and then vanish again. And sometimes these arches up into the, the sky. And whenever the serpent is spotted in these records, it's always a sign of misfortune to come. Then in this century, of course, it becomes possible with video technology to try and record the, the serpent. And the most famous, as far as I can tell, footage seems to be this stuff from the farmer at Hapenkelsdadir, which was recorded in 2012. Professor Vidalin was recruited by the Icelandic government to join a 13-person truth commission to decide whether the video was really proof of the Lagerflatsormo. One thing that I noticed in the East when I was shanghaied into that committee was that the people there, they really believe in the worm and they think it's an important part of their, just their general habitat. And But they also said that they would never admit as much to anyone from outside of the area because people wouldn't understand. We went to the exact same spot where the, he spotted the worm and we spoke with the farmer and his son and with several other locals. It turns out that there was a whole school bus sometime in the late 90s that witnessed the worm 
arriving in, in the lake. So both teachers and students, I think it was an elementary school bus. So I never realized how many people believed in it before then. The committee ultimately ruled in a 7-6 decision that the video was evidence of the worm's existence. But Professor Vidalin was in the minority who voted that it was false. I voted against. If you look at the video of it, it looks like it's a kind of a big worm, although far smaller than the worm in the legend. Uh, then you go to the location and you see how small an area it is and the, the, that the currents go in this wavy formation around some rocks there by the shoreline. So the video is not actually in the middle of the lake. It's right by the shore where the currents are the strongest. So what he has seen is something that is frozen and writhing in the lake, I believe. It kind of looks like a worm. And it's obvious that this worm, so to speak, would not have been moving forwards. It would have been stuck in this single place. Listening to this, it's clear the video is probably a hoax. But I just keep thinking, what if the Lagerflotsammer was real? Uh, I hate to say it, but I think it would have its 15 minutes of fame and, and then it would, it would disappear. So you could you can imagine uh, tabloid television having stories about this real lake monster and all that kind of stuff, and then it would disappear back into the world of myth. I, I love that these things exist, and I love that these things kind of keep popping up every, you know, five or ten years. Something happens, uh, and like the the conversation begins again. I think if you don't think about it too much, if you allow it, if you allow that mystery to live a little bit, then you can find like a common ground. It's become a really integral part of the tourist industry around the lake and in Eilstadir, and you see model monsters and car parks down by the lake with carved monsters over the entrance. I'm not sure that people think this is necessarily important to such bad luck any longer. It's more kind of opportunity. I wouldn't want to speak on its behalf. Let, let me put it this way. I, I think it would be disappointing to reduce any monster to a specimen. That, that, that would be somehow very sad. Uh, if it were something that were caught and analyzed and turned into a single knowable form, that would seem a reduction of the world. If the worm exists, then, or the Loch Ness monster or the demon horse, then just by virtue of it existing, I would say that it ceases to be a monster and the demon horse is no longer a demon. It's just a weird, murderous horse. It's a physical creature and it can't be a monster. Like in, in horror movies, like the more you see of the monster, the less scary it is. But if there's like just enough hints here and there. If it turns out to be a critter, I'd be really interested in knowing more about it. Like, where does it fit in the evolution of life? <laughs> but, you know, I think for the public, it would be very short-lived. So maybe the point isn't to find the sea monster, but to look for it. It's the seeking, the hunting down of the creature that leads us to the real discoveries. Everything we learn about the world, every scientific question, starts with imaginary thinking, wondering what could be possible. Sea monsters are powerful not despite, but because they're an idea. We think of them as these archaic myths, but they're actually a great motivator of progress. And in thinking about a sea monster, whether the Lagerflatzormer or some other beast from the depths, we might learn more about ourselves and why we're searching for it in the first place. 
Maybe that's what E.E. E. Cummings meant when he said that it's ourselves we find in the sea. For me, I think it's the promise of mystery, of an underwater world where I can escape all the constraints of my landlubber life. I want to be shocked and terrified, to know of a secret hidden under the glittering tides. It's almost as if I want to be the sea monster myself. If this lake creature is truly a monster, we'll never catch it. We'll never turn it into that specimen. It will always recede from us and be just at the horizon and kind of beckoning us toward knowing the world more deeply, but also admonishing us that there, there's always going to be some mystery in this world, some, something more than we can ever know. So it seems like sea monsters can only exist as long as they don't. And yet there are low rests in the fact that they might be out there somewhere waiting to enchant us or eat us. I think this sort of ontological paradox is why I was drawn to sea monsters in the first place, even before I had words to explain it. Because when the human world seems tedious and terrible, as it so often does, it's the idea of something magical just beyond the horizon that keeps us alive. 